Hello there everyone and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I am again joined by Ollie Walwyn. Hello. By Bradley Allsop. Hi folks. And Callum Watt. Good afternoon. So we're uh, speaking on a very hot weekend uh, and I'd like to start off in congratulating the people that have gone outside Lincoln County Hospital today for the protest and I'd like Callum to sort of introduce us about what the protest was about. Um, I understand you spoke at the protest, maybe give us a sample of what you were speaking about and just sort of the mood on the ground there because obviously quite a lot of people haven't been to a protest in months now and, and certainly for some of us that seems like a very long time because there's always something going on and then maybe you'd just like to give us the lowdown on what it was about and yeah uh, yeah so the, the context is that when the conservative government came to power um 10 years ago um they imposed a one percent annual pay rise freeze on uh, the the whole public sector um, which obviously means when taking inflation into account an effective pay cuts over time, which is quite considerable over a number of years. Um, in 2018, uh, there was a new pay deal agreed called Agenda for Change um, that agreed much more appropriate um, pay rises across the public sector, including the NHS. Um, it wasn't what everyone was hoping for, but it was it was much better than what was there before. That pay deal is now coming to an end uh, three years on. Um, and even prior to the pandemic, there was quite a lot of fear that there might be an attempt to reimpose that 1% cap. Um, but then obviously what we got at the beginning of this year was uh, an international uh, global catastrophe in the form of the pandemic. Um, and all of a sudden, um, all of those people in the NHS who have been punished for the last 10 years for the failings of bankers and financiers um, are suddenly called key workers and uh, highly valued by the government so the extent people will go out and clap for them including government ministers and applaud their efforts and so on um, entirely justified by the way putting themselves on the, on, on the line many many nhs workers have died in the, in the process of fighting this virus um, but they've also saved thousands of lives as well, of course. Um, and a new pay deal has been announced, but it only affects a small number of public sector workers, uh, mainly just doctors. And I'm not saying that they don't deserve a pay rise as well. But the vast majority of NHS staff have been left out of that pay deal. Um, and frankly, as I said, I spoke today as the Secretary of Lincoln Labour Party, it's an utter disgrace. Um, and we've had uh, impromptu demonstrations across the country. Uh, Lincoln did its bit. We had a, a fair few people outside uh, Lincoln County Hospital today um, on Great Well Road, uh, obviously protesting this deal now. Uh, there's no word, I believe, from uh, Link United Lincolnshire Health Care Trust. I don't think they've responded to the government's pay deal yet. Um, but obviously, um, we're, hope we're hoping that common sense will prevail um, and that's the general populace who have come out and clapped for the NHS and supported our key workers uh, so much over the last few months will really want to put 
you know money in their pockets and what i what i said today at the uh, at the protest is at, at the end of the day you know you don't want a person who is performing some complicated procedure on you uh, stressed and concerned and worried because they are worrying about keeping roof over their head or uh, whether they're going to be able to feed their kids next week you know we want a properly trained and supported uh, nhs which at the end of the day it's one of the biggest employers in the world um it's one of the biggest employers in lincolnshire if you think you know general forms of employment in in lincoln you've got the hospitality sector you've got siemens you've got the university you've got the nhs you know, there's there's thousands of people either directly employed in the NHS, you know, in the hospitals and clinics or, uh, you know, through care homes and GP surgeries and so on. Um, their money goes into the community. It goes back into our pockets. So you're not losing anything by by paying, paying NHS workers. Not only do they deserve it, the money goes back into your pockets and most importantly, it will save your life. And I hope that people will realise that. And that's the purpose of the process. And I suspect we'll see many more as the months go on. Um, we'll have to think about exactly how those protests run, go forward, depending on what happens with the pandemic. But I think we'll see a lot of action. And that, I think we can probably win because it is common sense. If there is a common sense to the British people, I think it will uh, land on the side of giving a hardworking NHS workers a pay rise that they deserve. I suppose the uh, the important thing to bear in mind when it comes to the NHS is that we've always known how valuable they are to society. That's always been something we've we've been so proud of since its inception. Um, the surprising thing for me was that the government went so very quickly from clapping them on the steps of Number Ten Downing Street to immediately screwing them over in in pay deals the minute that we start to see the r rate dropping their interest in trying to keep the nhs workers happy was dropping and dropping and dropping and i suppose ollie i'd ask you um what can we do next if if protests aren't working what is the next step for people on the left and indeed people across the political spectrum that are interested in looking after our nhs and paying the workers in the NHS, not just the nurses and doctors, but the people that work behind the scenes, like the porters, the administrators that keep the hospitals ticking over. What can we do next beyond protesting? Um, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think, well, I'm, I'm a massive advocate, obviously, for, for protests and uh, grassroots movements. Um, I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure what, what could be done um, next, but um, I do know, I think that uh, MPs have had eight pay rises in the past decade, and I understand the need for, for them to be paid a healthy wage. Um, but then they voted against giving a pay rise to doctors and nurses, and it, it makes you wonder where their, their priorities lie, as, as Callum says. Um, I mean, yeah, they voted against uh, nurses having to pay for parking. Um and they can't be played in claps, as as Callum says as well. Um, maybe the next time MPs are voting on a pay rise for themselves, we can say, well done, give them a few claps and ring a few bells and call it a day. But I'm, I'm not sure what what you could do in the way of um, in the way of after protesting. I don't know what comes next because if that doesn't work, then 
than a I, I don't know more, more serious uh, measures, I guess. I I mean, my gut reaction is obviously um, as a as a activist within the Labour Party is to get a Labour government, um, but that's a long way down the road. Potentially, we've got four years to another general election, um, or at least the start of the building up to a general election. Over that time, we, we appear that, to see that the the leader of the opposition is, is far less interested in giving us real policies, something to campaign on, something to push on. Um, so it returns again back to the grassroots. What can we do? Um, certainly during a pandemic, we won't, wouldn't want to hold a strike in the NHS. Um, but I think that the general public are so keen to support the NHS now. I think that we see rainbows everywhere on people's windows, on people's doors. People are really starting to understand how invaluable the NHS is to us. And yet we need to harness that, that, that feeling within the general public and put it in the direction that sees our NHS protected, not just in terms of the staff, but also we've got to remember that there is the potential for it to be broken up as part of a Brexit deal, which is something else that will threaten pay and conditions within the NHS. I suppose, uh, yeah, Callum, come in. Yeah, what I was going to say is uh, in terms of grassroots work, um, it's already started. Um, I mentioned there were quite a lot of impromptu protests this weekend. Um, most of those were organised by local, in, in our case in Lincoln, it was organised by the local Trades Council. Um, there will have been protests organised by branches. The initiative didn't, uh, and today's protests we had, representatives from Unison, GMB, uh, the RCN uh, and others in support as well. Um, the, the, they, they're not there by instruction from the top. They're there, they're there by local initiative. Now I understand that the, uh, the big unions are supportive of, the, of those measures, but it's noticeable that people are willing to come out. Um, we had properly socially distanced protests as well today. Obviously everyone was wearing masks um, and so on. And I think that's where it comes from. I think um, what the government does sometimes, I've observed, is that they will often put something out there. They will try something just to see what the government's reaction is to it. Um, like when the furlough scheme was originally being discussed, um, I think a couple of months ago, uh, there was a suggestion that it would be ended, I think, at the end of July. Uh, there was a massive backlash against that. And then Rishi Sunak stood there and go, no, 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 we're, we're going to extend it uh, on for a couple of months. Um, and then everyone calms down again. And that's a, that's a deliberate media tactic, by the way, to make it look like oh, they're listening, they're being reasonable, um, and to make people uh, who were getting angry, basically to take the winds out of their sails. It's a wind out of their sails strategy, uh, almost, if you like. And that could be what is happening here. Um, they've announced this. Um, they've left all of our NHS workers out of this pay deal, um, basically to as a wind up. And it's irresponsible. It's really, uh, you know, it's um, it's a terrible thing to do, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And I hope that when they do go to the ballot, they're punished for it. But in the meantime, I think the protest, uh, the protests, the priority needs to be in well basically we need to do what marcus rashford did for uh, free school meals 
you know, we need to make this a big issue that the media can't ignore um, and to make it part of the zeitgeist that at the end of the day, these are the people that saved our lives, you know, and they deserve to be rewarded, not just for that, but also because it's in our interest to do that as well, economically speaking as well. I suppose that that is the uh, the ultimate thing is that it's about challenging this government because at times they seem to struggle to know what their own policy is, as as we've heard from a number of ministers, even just on on measures of lockdown uh, throughout the last few weeks in local cities as to what the rules are, what the regulations are, and the same is about their policies towards the NHS. And the same is about their policies towards. Brexit, it's one thing one day, and then they seem to flip over to something else that might make them more popular. Um, but something that certainly has not made them very popular in the eyes of the general public is a PPE deal that was signed during the pandemic with a number of companies uh, worth over £150 million. And the deal itself has actually given the NHS, the government, a number of masks that are completely useless. So these masks don't have a full head, um, full head band, which means that they can't be pulled tight enough. Instead, they have something called ear loops. So the mask itself isn't actually protecting the user fully or up to the standards that is that is acceptable in the NHS and in a number of other public services. Um, looking into how this has happened. It turns out that it seems that the government has given contracts to companies that have had no experience in PPE, in manufacturing it, in selling it in vast quantities. Um, it seems like it's very much a uh, Brexit ferry saga all over again. If you remember that, where they bring in people that have never run ferries before to run ferries um, to move goods and vehicles across the channel. And so we're left in this situation again where the government has wasted vast amounts of money on something that is was never going to work from the start. They weren't using expertise. Again, it's this fear of the experts. Something started again by the likes of Gove. And now we're in a situation where £150 million has been wasted on PPE that is useless. It's redundant. And at the same time, ironically... They're not willing to spend that money on paying our nurses just that bit more, our NHS staff just that bit more, so they're comfortable whilst they're working their 12-hour shifts, whilst they're wearing that very PPE that the government's meant to source. So, I mean, Callum, I suppose uh, as, a, as a trade unionist in, involved in the NHS, what's, what's your initial reaction of, of, of yourself personally and maybe even your union to this? Once again, I have to say I'm... I'm genuinely not surprised um, that uh, this has happened. Um, the, th the thing about um, masks, um, we now know pretty definitely from the beginning, everyone should have been wearing a mask. I go out with a cloth mask, for instance, in day-to-day -day life. It is not ideal because it's, it's permeable um, and so on. And the surgical masks that you more often see in like, uh, medical dramas and things like that they're perfectly fine for day-to-day -day use and so on when it comes to uh using ppe and especially masks in clinical settings i.e in hospitals 
the bar is a lot, lot higher. Um, for instance, you have to put on the mask at the beginning of, the, of, of your shift. Um, and what they do is they'll spray a sort of bitter tasting fluid in your face, which is quite unpleasant, uh, as I understand it. I've not had to go through it myself, but that's what happens. Um, and if you and they call that fit test. And if you can taste the bitterness that comes from the liquids, that means you fail the fit test and you have to get another mask. And if you keep failing, you just can't go on shift. That's how high the bar is for medical masks. And then you look, um, you know, at the sort of PPE that they are actually being provided the basic surgical masks, which, as I say, are okay for sort of day-to-day -day use out and about in shops and things. Nowhere near adequate for a medical, or especially not a clinical session, uh, setting. And um, obviously, this has been rolling on for a long time. And I don't want to rag too much on. Uh, part of the problem is that you know, a lot of the people who have died, obviously, we know, been in care homes and so on. Um, care homes probably have the worst record for PPE. It's not entirely their fault because they're always the last priority. Um, but there are also bad practices, uh, soci practices associated with it. I was dealing with a member who, uh, in unison who uh, sent me pictures the other day of um, these sorts of masks with the ear loops that you mentioned that were just being stored on coat, coat hooks in corridors and they were expected to reuse them. You know, there's there's basic sort the, uh, another one where you have to put it in a little plastic bag and reuse it again. You know, there's all sorts of little inconsistencies. And as I say, it's not part of the problem is obviously that most of our care homes, the vast majority of our care homes are run by our private initiatives. That's a structural neoliberal thing um, that obviously needs to be fixed. But it's not entirely their fault. It's a supply thing. The fault really lies with the government in this because the 10 years they failed to prepare they didn't put together they didn't have the stockpiles of up-to-date ppe um, that they should have done you know i remember at the beginning of this crisis they that i had reps telling me they were opening up packages of ppe which had expiry dates back in 2017 and they they knew about this they did uh they did they did war games basically um back in i think 2016 to decide to uh, establish what the NHS's response would be uh, then to a global pandemic, exactly like what we've got now, or similar to what we've got now. Um, we don't know the results from that because they've been kept secret, but it appears they've done nothing about it. Um, and so we can't allow them to get away with saying that there's a global shortage, um, and that's why they haven't uh, been able to provide proper PPE. Um, it's because they failed to prepare in the first place, and that's the issue. So I'm not surprised that there's now also a scandal about this £150 million deal, because this is a government of spits, and much like with the ferry uh, case, um, they just want to funnel money to the private sector uh, and damn the actual health of the nation. Uh, Bradley, I suppose, what's what's your reaction to the uh, the news? I mean, as Callum said, it's not very surprising. Uh, and it is obviously the latest scandal in a long line of of PPE scandals and and uh, procurement scandals by the government. So, what was your reaction when you heard this news breaking? I mean, you know, po politics is always a matter of life and death. You know, lots of in lots of areas of of, of the work of the government. You know, the decisions that are made in Westminster will. Uh, Unfortunately, under the Tories, will all too often kill people. You know, it will lead to people's deaths. 
I think it that is often papered over in sort of a, a national political discourse in that often there'll be sort of a, a slightly indirect route between a government policy and, and someone's death. But I, I still think that that leaves the government culpable. But I think in, in the instance, so I think that's why the government gets off the hook a lot and, and why people aren't more outraged sometimes. You know, there's always sort of a, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's other factors other than just this policy change that's led to those deaths. And I think that, that gets the government off the hook quite a lot and why we don't see absolute rage at austerity policies and all the rest of it. I think where that doesn't really seem to count is in a pandemic. You know, it's perhaps the most direct linkage between government decisions and, and the deaths of, of people that you're ever going to see is, is in there is some sort of national crisis like a pandemic. You know, there's quite a direct link between the government not choosing to lock down early and not not providing proper PPE. You know, you can directly link um, the, the, these decisions to the deaths of people, maybe not an individual person, but but to the total deaths that we're seeing as a country at the moment. Um, so I, I think really once all this is over, there's going to have to be the mother of all investigations um, in, into what, what the how the Tories have been doing. Um, if you know, if you start digging into it just a little bit, um, the the absolute failures over PPE, um, uh, over you know, sort of dragging their feet to to make certain decisions in terms of lockdown. You know, th- there's been some serious serious errors, and and I and I do suspect that some of it is just outright cronyism and 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 trying to line the pockets at an opportunistic moment for for certain people that probably donate to the party quite quite nice sums of money. Um, but but surely this is the most direct, unequivocal example you're ever going to find of a government um, choosing to line the pockets of its donors over and above the lives of its citizens that it's supposed to protect. So, that, you know, there's there's got to be the mother of all parliamentary investigations into this once once the pandemic is over. Um, and and I, I just I, I don't see how they can get away with that if that is investigated properly, because it, it's absolutely outrageous. Absolutely. And I mean, we're already starting to see the uh, the government's rhetoric changing towards blaming individuals um, for going to the beach, blaming individuals for going to the shops and the pubs and, the, and to restaurants. And the, the polling the suggests that they're getting away with encouraged it. Them. Sorry, the, the yes, polling suggests yeah. they're getting away with it. it the, the public, uh, it, I think, particularly Tory voters, um, but but the public, uh, on average, is more, uh, you know, when asked if there is a second wave, who would you blame? They're more likely to blame the public than the government now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a deliberate ploy, because if you're encouraging people to go to shops, if you're encouraging people to go to pubs, if you're encouraging people to go to the beach and to spend their money, then obviously you're going to get a spike and obviously you, you're going to get an increase in cases and therefore an increasing deaths. So, I mean, it's 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 the government essentially saying, well, we're, we're doing the right thing. We're trying to get businesses back up and running. We're trying to get the economy restarted and at the same time not putting in the right measures to ensure that corona is being contained at the same time because it, they don't seem to care. So individuals are going out to the pub and they're realising they don't have to, it's not compulsory for them to track and trace it's not compulsory for them to sign where they've been in terms of pubs and restaurants. So they're not doing it. And then the government will turn around and say, well, you know, it's these individuals that have been irresponsible that have caused spikes. And it, and it's just the latest, isn't it? In, in we, we have this debate as a, as a 
society for, for decades you know wh- where does the blame lie does it lie with the individual or does it lie with the system and and, and those in power um, this is just the, the latest in that in that line of debate I suppose it's the latest battleground um, and you know t- tick your bingo cards off but it's neoliberalism isn't it it's um it's this idea that individuals are responsible for their own health um, and their own welfare and their own life circumstances and that um, the, the government and the, and the system that we live under does, doesn't bear any responsibility for that, that you can only blame yourself if something doesn't work out. Um, and, and so, this, you know, this idea of, well, we'll blame the public if there's a second wave, it's just straight out of the neoliberal playbook. And it, it's a way of them dodging responsibility again. Absolutely. And, and Ollie, I suppose, further to that, is are we seeing that the government is, would you call it a deliberate ploy to essentially restart the economy, but at the cost of lives, risking people's lives, ultimately for that neoliberal ideology, not for the greater good of looking after people and ensuring that we get the lowest number of people um, killed by this effectively. Uh, I would ab- absolutely say that it's a deliberate ploy to uh, to value the economy over over people's lives. Um, I mean, th- this this is just uh, just ridiculous incompetence. It shouldn't be happening. Um, Boris Johnson said he was very disappointed that the shipment was unusable. Well, great, you're, you're disappointed, but that's not going to help the the health workers that don't have any masks to use. Um, I don't think any of the the emergency government contracts that have been given out during the pandemic would hold up to proper scrutiny. To be honest, um, I think it is. I think uh, as I think Callum said. Or Bradley said, sorry, um, they're outsourcing public money, taxpayer money, to dodgy third-party companies uh, that have really dodgy links to uh, some of the government ministers. It's just playing Corona roulette, really, with with health workers' safeties. These companies don't have any experience with what they're dealing with, so there's no justification for it. And I think, yeah, we absolutely do need a really detailed um, public inquiry into these ongoings. Uh, I mean, I think Keir Starmer said yeah. that he was looking in, into uh, starting an inquiry on, on this particularly. Absolutely. I, I think that, as Bradley said, it we need to have that mother of all inquiries because there's been so many shortcomings. There's been so many problems with the government's reaction that has effectively cost cost tens of thousands of people's lives. And that that in itself is is completely unacceptable that that is completely unacceptable and ultimately they should be held to account my my fear is that they were using this spin that they're trying to do now and and uh, i know bradley pointed to the uh, to the, some of the polling figures to say that people are quite happy with how the government has done it that they they will get away with it and it's our job as people um in opposition to hold them to account, to make sure that people realise that actually what these statistics mean is something completely different to what the government narrative is. Callum? Yeah, I was just going to say on the, on public perception, um, call me cynical, but I think probably the reason that the, uh, that the public are probably giving the government a bit of a pass at the moment is because it's nice and sunny outside. I'm look, sitting here, I'm looking at green trees and so on. There's people moving around. There is no lockdown at the moment, effectively. Um, some places are not allowed to open, like nightclubs and things like that. But the country's been opened up. 
um, the economy's moving, people probably do have a positive uh, image of the government because of that. That will change very rapidly um, if we actually get a second wave, um, because then it will be necessary to lock down again. The government knows this, by the way. Um, and uh, as I said, this is why I think that they're probably trying to play silly buggers, really, with their PR strategies, because they will almost certainly have to reintroduce the lockdown. They'll have to reintroduce uh, the furlough scheme, because at the moment, you know, there are a few local lockdowns going on. Um, I don't agree with the whack-a-mole strategy. Um, Mr. Fauci in the United States correctly said it doesn't work. Um, it's not going to work even during the summer. Um, but when winter comes along, it will be completely uncontrollable. Um, we do not have a vaccine yet. And at the end of the day, that you're either going to have probably several times more people die this winter than did in the last one, um, or they're going to have to implement the lockdown, which I think is much more likely. So I'm not so, I'm, I'm, you know, I hope that they will actually see sense if that happens and actually lock people down. Um, and and, and uh, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, and introduce the furlough scheme because that would be the right thing to do for public health. The scarier option is if they keep uh, the country open. And I really don't think that if they do that, the people will forgive them in the long run. I suppose it's, it's the case of when it comes to talking about the government being willing to reintroduce a lockdown, if they've sort of let people out of the uh, out of the traps um to to reopen the economy and restart business as, as the narrative is telling us do you think that people will be willing to go back into lockdown uh, certain people are already refusing to wear masks in shops uh, or uh, take adequate uh, actions to mitigate the risk of covid do you think that this is this is something that the government have bought on ourselves though by encouraging this individualism that we spoke about earlier? Uh, yes and no. I, I think that, the, I, I mean, obviously it's difficult to predict public behaviour, um, but I strongly suspect that if a lockdown is reimposed, it will be seen to have been necessary. And I think people will understand. Don't forget that during the first lockdown, the reason people were doing it was not necessarily just because the government um, was saying that they should, but because they understood the need for it. Um, and that is what I, if, if I mean, hopefully, you know, maybe the, the virus will be magically gone by autumn. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I don't think we're going to have a vaccine uh, by the autumn. And there are really two options. You know, either this virus comes back and kills many tens of thousands more people um, and we do nothing about it, or we do exactly the same thing as we did uh, in the late winter and early spring and you implement a lockdown. And I think at that point, the, the, it's really on the government for having told people to come out and effectively preserve and prolong the virus by by telling people it was safe. Um, you know, and that, that's, that's their prime, really. That's what, that will be the focus of an eventual investigation, which is going to happen if they don't manage this health crisis correctly. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I, I always hope that the Tories will fall from power, right? But I hope that they will be conscious of when that happens. They must know 
that what they're doing now is not just making history, but they've got tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of lives in their hands. So what I'm essentially saying is I hope they remember their humanity and empathy, uh, or at the very least um, are conscious of their place in the history books um, before the second wave comes, probably towards the end of September and early October. Yeah, I suppose it, it, it does. You would hope that the government understands that if we do see a spike, they'll put us into another lockdown. And they've always said about the, uh, the obviously the whack-a-mole strategy. But another piece of rhetoric that's always being um, thrown out is about putting on the brakes, the willingness to put on the brakes. And we've seen a number of uh, local lockdowns in, in, in the country, uh, recently Preston, certain northern cities uh, Leicester's just come out of lockdown famously one of the first local lockdowns in the country it's a case of whether this whack-a-mole strategy will work or whether we're just going to have to go back to a uh, another blanket lockdown that we'll, we'll see the country locked down for a, another few weeks or months obviously depending on the spike that we experience in light of the uh, in light of the reopening of the economy so we'll move on to some more local politics. Um, there's been whispers uh, that the some local conservative politicians are calling for a restructuring of, of local government in Lincolnshire. We currently have a two-tier system whereby we have the district councils, one of which includes Lincoln City Council. And then we have the upper tier county council, which is... Uh, conservative run and it's certain voices amongst that county council that have been starting to maybe look at restructuring local government and what this would mean for Lincolnshire is a number of things but what it would likely mean is a unitary council of some description and the end of the city council and county council I'm wondering if you could fill us in on these on these revelations Callum well, you say people, and there's not much evidence from what I've seen that it's many more people than just the Conservative leader of the County Council, uh, Martin Hill, um, who has indicated, and I do stress he has just indicated, um, that he intends to write to, at, the, at this stage, and that he intends to write to the Secretary of State to, for local government to ask for a local government review. Now, the thing is, if you look at local government uh, across England, really, um, we do have this two-tier system in lots of places, as you just described. Um, if you were starting out um, drawing a plan for local government, you probably wouldn't start uh, with a two-tier system um, because it, what it effectively does is it divides certain responsibilities between the two. Um, many people don't know where the divides are, who's responsible for what. You also get some, so broadly speaking, county council is responsible for public health, roads, education, um, city council, district councils. They're responsible for things like uh, housing uh, and planning. But you get weird things as well where um, planning, in fact, is actually shared between the county council. Uh, and the city council, depending on certain circumstances. Um, other notable uh, weird situations are that the city council is responsible for collecting waste and recycling and so on, but the county council is responsible for disposing of it. 
So it's a bizarre system, and it doesn't really um, it doesn't really work in the public mind. People often, when they have a local issue, they'll talk about whatever the council is doing, uh, without qualifying which one is doing what. Um, so that's the that's the sort of context for it. Um, we've had that for, for for many decades, and on on the face of it, um, the the indication is that they're that the, the nightmare scenario, in a way, is for uh, Lincoln County Council to become what we call a unitary authority. So he would be taking on all local government concerns. Now, that's a bit of a concern for uh, the Labour Party in particular, because uh, the Conservative Party has controlled, and it controls most county councils, it's controlled Lincolnshire County Council uh, all in an almost unbroken run for over 100 years. And the only time it hasn't been in power was between, uh, I think it was 1993 and 1997, uh, when there was a Lib Lab coalition of sorts. Um, and they actually did quite a lot in that period. One of the things, of course, was notably they brought the university to Lincoln, um, which has obviously been a, a major success. And that's their legacy, but it's the only time that progressive parties have been in control of Lincolnshire. So that the idea of becoming unitary of Lincolnshire is um, quite a scary one. Um, there are obviously plenty of alternatives. In a local government review, and um, the way it generally works um, is that all of the district authorities, include and the county council, um, have to universally agree on a new system. There was a proposal um, a few years ago, I think in uh, 2016, uh, to go over to um, to having an elected mayor for Lincolnshire, for Greater Lincolnshire, uh, and then there would be uh, an authority to, to sort of hold them to account, which would consist of the leaders of all of the district councils. Um, and that actually got voted down by the Conservative County Council, as it happens. Um, cynics might say that that's because a lot of those county councillors are also district councillors and they didn't want to potentially in the long run lose the extra income from being dual councillors. Um, others may have had a more democratic idea uh, of, of having more, more delegated local authority. Um, but anyway, that, that didn't exist. But now, completely out of the blue, in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, national international crisis martin hill has decided to sort of throw this major spanner in the works and uh, uh, and so and potentially create this unitary authority there might be you know several unitary authorities one proposal that's one thing that's being talked about i should say is that a unitary of north lincolnshire and a unitary of south lincolnshire there's a possibility of sticking uh, lincoln together with west lindsay which is actually to the north of us and North Highcombe, which is actually to the south of us, uh, North Castevan rather, um, and creating another uh, authority. There could be completely new boundaries. Um, there's just, um, what there basically is, is at the moment, the only thing we can say for certain is there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, most political parties, I think, are assuming that city and county elections are going to be going ahead as normal in May next year obviously the pandemic might interfere with that as well but if something does happen with it it might happen very quickly um and uh, so yeah i think you know it's not really been thought through there's there's 
there's a few voices calling for there to be more time to discuss the issue like there was before, some proper consultation. Really, at the moment, it's completely up in the air. But I think from the perspective of the people of Lincolnshire, it's, it's, I think it's bananas. You know, why would you decide at this moment, you know, to, uh, to, to uh, have some sort of local government review when tens of thousands of people are dying? Um, I think it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not wanted either by the political class or I think the people of Lincolnshire. Um, and I hope it. I hope it gets dropped. If we do become a unitary authority, of course, there's potential. You know, if the if the boundaries are right, you know, if we take in some urban areas and commuter villages and so on, that actually increases the tax base. A lot of the people who live in Lincolnshire, of course, commute into Lincoln and use the services here. So it kind of makes sense that that they might want to pay for them and to to have a say over how they're run. So that's a potential positive outcome, but there are also quite some potential negative outcomes as well. Um, so that's the context for it, uh, I would say. Yes, I'd, I'd just like to, so on the 17th of July, uh, a press release was put out by Lincolnshire County Council titled Fantastic Opportunity for Greater Lincolnshire, which is this sort of amalgamation of all the uh, county councils in Lincolnshire. And, and it says, uh, it has been announced this week that Greater Lincolnshire has been invited to bid for local government reorganisation later this year as part of a devolution package. The move to restructure the county's governance has been led by Lincolnshire County Council, North and North East Lincolnshire Unitary Authorities, with seven district councils represented in early discussions with government. Councillor Martin Hill, the person you mentioned, Callum, as, as sort of the the uh, ringleader, I suppose, uh, leader of Lincolnshire County Council, said, we had a successful meeting with Simon Clark MP this week at which all 10 councils were represented. The minister indicated the government were keen for the county to progress a devolution proposal and indicated this would give both more power and more money to Greater Lincolnshire. As a county council, we're excited by this prospect and are keen to ensure that we are at the front of the queue to get this prize for Greater Lincolnshire residents. We will be building on the work we have already done for previous devolution bid and are, confidence, are confident that we can hit the government's timescales of early autumn. This is a fantastic opportunity for Greater Lincolnshire that we don't want to lose out on. I suppose from that, Bradley, is this a political decision they've taken? Because they talk about the money and they talk about the exciting opportunity. Is it an exciting opportunity for everyone in Lincolnshire or just the Conservatives? I mean, it, it would very clearly be a, a chance for the Conservatives to to fully consolidate their power across the county. Um, you know, there's the sort of the, the, the one uh, holdout, which is Lincoln, really, that um, has, is controlled by Labour and has been for some time. Um, although not exclusively, Callum, what you'll probably be able to tell me, there was a brief time when the Conservatives controlled the City Council, wasn't there? He's not there. Uh, we'll take that. Yeah, I, I, I think there was a brief time, but but anyway, you know, it would certainly be a, a potential way to to need to the sort of the the Socialist Republic of, of Lincoln, um, and, and I, I'm sure that appeals to Martin Hill um, very strongly. Um, 
for me, the, the question really has got to come down to, you know, where, where's the impetus from this? Uh, are, are the public calling for this? Um, is this being driven by what the people of Lincolnshire want? Um, and if it's not, what what is driving it? Um, and I think that really for, for activists in Lincoln and, and wider Lincolnshire has has to be the priority um, in terms of campaigning. It has The priority has to be this needs to be a democratic campaign. Uh, you know, grassroots-led initiative. Whatever the future of the council system in Lincolnshire looks like, that has to be informed by the, the the views of the people of Lincolnshire and what they want from their from their local council. That that has to be front and foremost. And I, I'm not convinced that is really anywhere near the top of Martin Hill's priorities at the moment. Yeah, I suppose that coming back to that point of uh, of, of what do people really want in Lincolnshire? I know that there is a lot of um, confusion sometimes about exactly how the system works in Lincolnshire because um, we have this two-tier system people gen generally refer to the council without necessarily realizing that there's two councils that cover the city of Lincoln some covering some services some covering another and that that's problematic obviously for when we're trying to open up a debate about something like this so I suppose uh, Ollie I'd ask you about this would you say that if we're trying to have a debate with the general public or opening this up, ideally after a pandemic instead of during it, would you, would you say that people understand enough already about how the system works or what they really want? Or is it a, a system that's far too complex for people to understand without, um, without actual literature beforehand introducing what the county council does, what the city council does and what this unitary authority that they're proposing would do? Um, this, yeah, it, it seems kind of crazy to me, uh, as someone who doesn't have, uh, intricate knowledge of the details of the workings of, of the councils in Lincoln. Um, I, I just, I don't understand why at this time, especially what is the need for this devolution? Um, I, I, yeah, I just, it, it seems strange to me. I certainly don't think, um, people, well, just anyone most people in Lincoln wouldn't really appreciate what this what this would accomplish. I mean, they've talked about the money, but who's it the money for? Is it for is it for the people? Is this in the interests of the people? Of as Bradley says, um, I just I don't see I don't see its relevance particularly. Yeah, and I, and and again, it, it it's about relevance, isn't it? Because we've already had a debate about this only a few years ago where a separate bid was placed for devolution powers. And as, as Callum uh, eloquently described the whole process and then the, uh, and then the effectively the, the quashing of, of the proposals. And now we're coming back to this same question. And I suppose in my own opinion, I think that unless we were to get some sort of greater Lincoln or a, or a larger area for Lincoln, that would mean a unitary authority that would cover the, the area around Lincoln and enlarge the boundaries of Lincoln. It can only be a bad thing for the people of Lincoln and Lincolnshire, especially if we're looking at this greater Lincolnshire body that they're proposing. Just to think about the size of it, it would be some sort of behemoth compared to other unitary authorities that have been proposed in the past. It would be a big, uh, it would be, well, with the second largest county in the country, that would encapsulate that. And it's such a diverse county uh, in terms of the different areas that we have. You have the urban 
area of Lincoln, you have the coastal areas of Lincolnshire, and then you have these, these small villages and towns, market towns throughout Lincolnshire. And it's quite rural, but it's also got urban areas and large towns like uh, Greater Grimsby. So it's such a complex county to then put it in one unitary authority. It would be, I think it would be a poor decision to make uh, without splitting it down further into smaller unitaries uh, in, in, in any proposals. Uh, I suppose, I, I wonder if you share that view or you think that actually we'd be better off just leaving it be even after the, uh, after the pandemic works in Lincolnshire. I mean, yeah, may, maybe it's uh, to to me. It seems a very uh, long and, and convoluted um, process. I don't know whether it could be restructured to prioritize the interests of people. As you say, it's a very it's a very diverse county. Um, so, yeah, we've got you now, Callum. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I I think uh, the priorities of the people are, are what is important here, not not what should be happening for maybe political gain for the for the conservatives to uh, consolidate their their power in the county. That's just not in in the interests of of people. So I, I think that's what's important. Um, and and if it's not, then yeah, I think we do have to question what, what's it for. Then who who is this? Where where is this coming from? Hmm. I suppose the 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 term we tend to use for this sort of thing is gerrymandering, changing political boundaries and political structures to fit your political gain as a, as a party or as an individual. And, and it, it does seem to be shaping up to be something like that. Um, and that that's for, for somebody that would maybe want to look at local authorities as something that can be reformed and something that should be reformed, not for political gain, but because actually a more straightforward unitary system that would maybe better represent people and be less confusing for people to seek out the right services and seek out the help that they need from the local authorities, it, it can wash away that argument. And I, and I know that there certainly would be some people that would love that to happen. Certainly some, some canvassers would prefer that knocking on doors and having to explain which council does what before we even get on to what, what policies we're trying to put forward. Uh, Callum, did you have anything to say on uh, any potential uh, sort of ideal model that you would like to see if there was to be some sort of reform in, in uh, Lincolnshire or Greater Lincolnshire, as Martin Hill likes to call it? I mean, obviously, the ideal would be simply to turn uh, Lincoln City Council into a unitary itself, which, um, by the way, up until about 1974, it was, I believe. Um, and if you go back um, to you know, when we started building council houses in the early part of the 20th century, one of the reasons they found it quite easy to do that is because they controlled the roads, they controlled housing, they controlled water, electricity, everything, uh, health and education and so on. All of that was done at a very local level. Um, and we're quite almost unique, I believe, in the Western world for having quite weak local government. Um, a lot of it has been stripped away, obviously, especially in the last sort of 30, 40 years or so. Um, 1974, um, the Government Act is what split and created a lot of two-tier authorities. Um, so that's the sort of historical context. So it's possible for Lincoln to be uh, a unitary. Um, it's not realistic under the present circumstances because in the past um, they would have had much stronger sources of revenue. I believe they had 
access to a lot more taxation, um, much of which now goes to central government rather than local governments. There would have been more support from the centre. It was easier to get long-term loans, for instance. Um, but the magic number really is 30,000. The standard size uh, that, that, that the government almost by accident, and when I say the government, I mean the government, all G, not necessarily just the Tories, um, is the, the, the figure that um, they seem to have come to future authorities. They need to be at least 300,000 people rather. Um, and as I say, that is possible um, if you take into account places like North Lycombe, which is essentially part of a part of the urban conurbation of Lincoln, if you like, some of the surrounding villages like Nottingham, Skellingthorpe and so on, which are quite culturally, they're quite close to Lincoln as well, socially. Um, you know, I can see it working. There is possibilities as well. They would, uh, one, the, the Lincoln City Council, it's worth noting as well, of course, in the last proposal to create a mayor of Lincoln, did actually vote for the devolution. They were in favour of it because they wanted or they desperately needed. I think they were pushed into it really by the need for money. Um, as we know, um, government um, support to local authorities has been falling consistently over this decade. And the hope was that by agreeing to this devolution deal, that would get more money in for local services. So it's quite an altruistic um, approach in that respect. Um, doubtless, there will be more money going into this particular reorganisation as well. Um, but obviously, we have to look in the long term. Obviously, being unitary would give a, 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 a covering a big area would create a larger tax base. Um, but it would have to change the way that um, we campaign, even if it becomes a positive uh, thing. If we get decent boundaries for a new unitary for Lincoln, and obviously we do also have the, the nightmare scenario of a unitary of the whole of Lincolnshire, which would not be very democratic, um, as you said. The the county is extremely diverse. That wouldn't necessarily be appropriate. Um, but I think it's, it's early days yet. The letter hasn't even been submitted. So we'll just have to see what happens. Absolutely. Um, and just sort of to to round off that, that discussion, Martin Hill was obviously talking a lot about money uh, in, in, his, uh, in the press statement from Lincoln County, Lincolnshire County Council, sorry. Uh, and obviously local government itself has been strangled so much over recent years. Massive cuts have meant that local authorities cannot do their job. And certainly the pandemic has only highlighted how just a small break in their funding from income from parking, income from business rates can completely wipe them out, can completely decimate their funding and in turn decimate the funding that would then go into local services that people so desperately need so it, it's a positive that if local authorities get more money but is a greater Lincolnshire as this seems to be branded really the way forward to do that that would ensure that local people don't just get that money but they also get representation and they also get a voice within that body so I think we'll round off there if you have any closing remarks, Ollie, feel free to speak your mind. Uh, I do not, no. Brilliant. Uh, Bradley? Uh, no, that's it from me, I think. Brilliant. And Callum, any closing remarks? The only thing I would say, as I, say, as I said earlier, if there are any protests going on, please do support them. 
um, please do support your key workers and uh, let's see if we can actually uh, uh, get the NHS back uh, up and running and get people the money they deserve so it works properly for us the people absolutely so it's uh, a goodbye from Ollie goodbye uh, goodbye from Bradley yep see you folks goodbye from Callum goodbye and a goodbye from myself thank you again for listening 